So for those just joining us uh, over the last five weeks, we've been in a series looking at different prayer practices and, and going through different ways that we can engage in deeper intimacy with the Lord. And then what we do is we take that practice and we do it together as a church. Not because we should use all these different prayer practices at the same time and be overwhelmed by them, but simply because each of these is like an additional tool in our tool belt. Last week, I actually had like a tool belt here or a tool bucket that I brought with all these different tools from my father's garage of his thousands of tools, saying that we can use these different tools for different things in different ways. And it's great to have a larger tool belt. In the same way, we need a larger prayer tool belt that's beneficial for that. And this past week, I raided my father's... uh, garage again and grabbed another tool for a project. And this one is one that I probably won't use all the time, but I was looking for something like this. And it's a, a six inch crescent wrench of adjustable wrench from Snap-on made in the USA will last forever. It's very old and it will keep lasting longer than anything that's made today. It was something I needed it for a small project for an adjustable wrench. I won't use it every single day. In fact, I might not even use it that much, but it's an incredibly useful tool to have for anyone that's a mechanic and knows. And it's incredible quality because it's not modern junk. In fact, it's ancient by today's standards. and It will outlast any other tool probably in my toolbox. And again, the same thing is true with our prayer practices. And so, so far, we've looked at a number of prayer practices over the last number of weeks. We've looked at breath prayer. We've looked at practicing the presence of God. We've looked at the Lord's Prayer. We've looked at Psalm 23 of the Lord's, the Lord's Prayer, or sorry, the Shepherd Prayer. We looked at Lexio Divina. And then last week, we looked at prayer of examine. And today, I want to put one more tool in our prayer toolbox. This will be the last one as we kind of finish up this series. There'll be one more message as we look at praying for one another. But this is the last one in this series of, of, of examples of prayer. And this prayer that we're looking at today integrates well with the others. But before we jump into this week's, I just want to make a note about last week's prayer of examine. And that is that uh, this past was a Thursday night. We were meeting as our small group and we were going through the discussion questions and things. And a number of people in the, in the group, our group, we have, what, 15 adults and 28 children, I think, were present. So it's, it's not a small group, uh, all under 10 or most under six. Uh, so it's, it's very lively. Uh, but anyways, as we were gathering, a number of people were sharing about this, that they've struggled with the prayer of examics. They're getting stuck in the part about uh, what they didn't do well and the repentance part. And it just kind of struggled to see the things they do well. And they're, they're getting stuck on the things that they've, that were those missed opportunities. And I was sharing, you know, that's why I wrote this whole sermon the week before about how repentance needs to be a beautiful thing, not a, not a, not a, a fearful thing of not feeling we're getting beaten down by a, an angry God or some way, but something that it, we can actually rejoice in is God kind of removing those, those, the, the weeds from our prayer, from our garden of our hearts. And it should be a beautiful, freeing thing. But even then, some people struggled with it, and people were saying they were doing it. And I said, that's why I broke step three of that prayer into two parts. That's why I started the first part of that is go through and look at what did God do? What, where did you notice the presence of God? Where was God present? Where did you partner with him in ways that are well? Before you move to the second part. And I recognize that even then some people struggle. In fact, that's why, uh, you see, Ignatius, when he did this prayer, he only had it three prayer, or step three was just the one part. Go through both the positive or the ways you you engage, the ways you didn't engage. But I've broken it because in the years that I've been teaching on this, so many people just get stuck on the negative, so I break it into two. But even then, some people still struggle. And so what I've often encouraged over the years, and I forgot to mention this last week, was if you're really wrestling with that, if you find yourself doing it, you're just kind of stuck on the I'm bad and there's something wrong with me and all I got to do is improve. What I recommend is just remove the whole second half of the prayer. 
right? Just start with the first half, pray the first half, acknowledge where you, you saw God, where you met with God and where you've experienced him and don't even do the repentance part. Don't even do the where did I miss opportunities part. Just stay there for a couple of weeks of doing that until you can be able to see those, rejoice with those before you go into the next part if that's something that's been hard for you. Because some people just get stuck in that place and it can kind of be unhealthy in that way. So just until you can see that and rejoice with God and get a better vision for that, don't even worry about the second half if you're getting stuck there and it becomes every time you do it, you're not looking forward to it because it's just hard, right? Do that and then move to the fuller thing. Remember, there's no rules with this stuff. It's just to be whatever helps you grow in intimacy with Jesus. And times with Jesus should not be all about what did I do wrong, right? And that's not how it is for me. And so take that advice if it's something that you've been working with. So today I want to introduce another one of my favorite prayers. And and this is a a form of prayer that helps us enter into the text, It's another prayer practice that was popularized by Ignatius of Loyola, just like some of the others back in the 1500s, just like the examined prayer, just like uh, Lexio Divina. This form of prayer also has its roots back to the Old Testament, but was prayed regularly regularly by many of the early church fathers. From Origen speaks of it in the 2nd century, Augustine speaks of it in the 4th century, and countless people since then. But Ignatius of Loyola really popularized it in the 1500s when he put it in his spiritual exercises we talked about last week, that he would take people on these retreats. And the prayer practice we're looking at today is called entering into the gospel stories. It's to imagine ourselves being there in the story, to see what is being described, to feel the emotions of the, of the people in the story in the passage, to hear the sounds, to smell the sense, to try to enter into the story of Jesus. And it requires us to imagine or to visualize what it would have been like at that time as we seek to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Now, in this practice, what we do in big picture is we take a story of Jesus in the Gospels, we read through it a couple times, and then we just close our eyes and we imagine ourselves being there right in the middle of that passage and that story. And we we see what we would smell and feel and and hear. And we picture who would have been present in that story. We we look around and we imagine the scene of what would have been happening as 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 that story unfolds. And we choose a character in the story to 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 see it through their eyes. And we ask, you know, where is Jesus doing? What, what is he saying? What were the people around him doing? What were they feeling? What's the, the tension that's going on? What are they saying to one another? What emotions fill their words? What, what, is, what, what is happening in the story? And we kind of watch the scene play out as we pray. And we could take the place of one of the main characters of the story, or we could take one of the bystanders that are on the sides and just watch it unfold. But we want to feel the tension of the moment. We want to see what's happening and to not only read the words but to feel the emotions and to see and to feel and experience the stories of what's going on. We want to allow God to capture our heart and our minds. And so I want to do a short example of this together, and then we'll do the whole prayer in a few minutes after that. But a short example is we pick any story from the gospel. For example, we pick the story of Jesus calling Matthew to to be one of his disciples, and he goes to his house. And that story is found in Mark chapter 2. So we'll read through it once, and I'll kind of walk through how I might do this prayer with this one. So Mark chapter 2, verse 15, it says, While Jesus was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who were following him. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, then we would just go back through the story again. We'd read it again. And we'd try to really enter into the story is what this prayer practice is about. Rather than just keep reading or just meditating on a phrase, we try to imagine the scene. So the way I would do this one is I would close my eyes and I'd begin to just imagine Levi's home. 
right? So Levi, the same name for Matthew. But Ignatius would say, on this step, you want to say, what do you see, smell, hear, and feel? Like, what you want to get into the senses of it. So I'd imagine myself in Levi's home, a wealthy tax collector with lots of spaces and different eating areas. Most of the guests then would be wealthy tax collectors, right? It'd be prostitutes and other people who are disreputable, that are degenerates and sinners by that standards of that time. And I'd picture the scene and I would imagine myself maybe being a tax collector who's there, who's there in the room sitting at the table with Jesus. And I asked, what is Jesus doing? And Jesus is just there chilling at the table, right? So he's, he's reclining, he's chilling there. He's, he's sitting with the partiers, he's with drunkards and prostitutes and all these degenerates. The only kinds of people that would hang out with tax collectors, the most hated people in the society, be those who would also be hated by society. And then I'd look at Jesus and the people around him, and I'd ask kind of, what is Jesus doing? And I would see him, you know, not just chilling, but talking to the people at the table with the tax collectors. I'd picture everyone at total ease around Jesus, just leaning in. No one acting self-righteously, no one feeling afraid of him, but people leaning in as they ask him stories of what he was doing that day, about what they saw him do, and what's going on. And I see Jesus asking them questions about themselves. And I see even the prostitutes and the tax collectors don't feel ashamed around Jesus, I would notice, but they're, they're leaning into a conversation with him. And I see Jesus laughing as he tells stories, as other people are talking, and these sinners are at complete ease around Jesus at this table. As they just kind of pepper him with questions, and he responds with such grace and gentleness. And then I would see the Pharisees walk in. A group of wise men in robes with anger on their faces and, and self-righteous, pompous attitude. And you can tell that these guys look like they're afraid that they're going to catch some kind of disease just by being in the room the way they walk in. And they're just repulsed by the people in the room. And then I'd see that they've uh, been threatened by, these, by, the, by what Jesus is doing. And you can see them come in. And, and as they just see the scum as they consider all around them, these grotesque sinners and these Pharisees are outraged, as I imagine the story out, playing out. And one yells out, how can you eat with such sinners and, and degenerates? And I look around and I see the hurt and the pain in the eyes of all those present around Jesus. They all hate the Pharisees, their smugness and self-righteousness. They're always adding more steps on this ladder of righteousness to try and be better than everyone else. And then I imagine just looking at Jesus to see how he'll respond, right? This is how I would pray this prayer, just living this thing out. And Jesus, I see he looks at the Pharisees and all their self-righteousness. And then he says, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. He says, I've not come for the likes of you. I've come for people like them who know that they're broken and know they need help. The people whom you mock and look down upon. And while the Pharisees walk away in disgust, I would see the joy on the face of the people around us who are just drawn to Jesus, someone who is there for them, someone who sees them for who they are for the first time, not just as sinners and degenerates, but people. And that would be that step, just walking through the prayer. Right? That would be the main part of it. And then after that, the next step is then go and talk to Jesus. Right, Whatever prayer, whatever person I've chosen to assume in that time, just go up and speak with Jesus. And I'd imagine myself in that case being a tax collector sitting at Jesus' table, and so I'd finish up by just telling Jesus, thank you. I'd walk up to say thank you. Thank you for seeing me and not just seeing my sin. Thank you for spending time with me. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is going to speak in this time. I'd say I've never seen anyone stand up to, to those evil men before, and as I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to speak, maybe... 
He can speak one of many different things in this time. And I'm trusting it. This isn't like some imaginary playtime. It's not where we're like, we're playing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's not like uh, my six-year-old, you know, playing you know, battle games with his dino nuggets at the dinner table, right? Fighting against each other. This isn't just imagine, imaginary or, or, or fake in some way. It's genuinely expecting the Holy Spirit to move in this time. And as I sit there looking at Jesus' face, as I, as I do these kinds of things, often I'm brought to tears and I see Jesus. Maybe he just says, James, follow me. He says, James, I, I, I see you. You do not need to be afraid. Your old way of living is over. Come and follow me. I'm your father and I love you more than you could ever comprehend. I want to be with you. Your identity is not as a tax collector, as a sinner, a divorcee, or a single father, whatever the things are the world calls us. Your identity is a child of God. Amen? I take a couple of minutes and just pray in gratefulness for that. I'd, I'd pray the Lord would open up my heart and Maybe I'd pray the Lord would help me to see those who have been rejected by society today with his eyes. Who am I treating like the Pharisees treated people? Who am I looking down upon? Who am I not seeing with the eyes of Jesus? And I would spend some time with the Lord, right? So that would be kind of my prayer using this particular passage. It'd be something along those lines. It goes different directions every single time. But the idea is that I get enter into the text and I trust the Holy Spirit to lead me and guide me in that process. And I follow his promptings as I do. And in this case, it'd be to receive his unconditional love and to move my heart towards those who are hurting and towards those who have been rejected in that passage. And so the main elements of this prayer is, well, we start by, with praying and then read the gospel passage a couple times. We're then going to imagine the scene and walk through it with our imagination. So we're going to put ourselves in the scene, maybe as an observer or the one receiving love or the one receiving healing or maybe your friend carrying the lame, if that's the story. Then we're going to pay attention to what we see and hear and feel. We're going to look at what Jesus is doing. Look at, uh, listen to what he says. We're going to look at the people around us and what they are doing and what they're feeling and how are people responding to Jesus. We just kind of go back through the story and kind of re- re- Re, uh, just imagine that story as we go through it. And then finally, we're going to take a moment to speak with Jesus. We're going to reflect on what we've seen. We're going to process how the passage applies to us and listen to what he might say back to us. All right. So now I recognize, I fully recognize that in saying that, there's some of you right now that are going, wow, that's garbage. Right? I, I want nothing to do with that. I'm not a touchy-feely person. I want facts, not feelings. Right? I don't need a kumbaya circle when I read the Bible. Right? When I've taught on this in the past, I've had people respond you know, get a little nervous, they're asking, but are we allowed to use our imagination when, you, when we approach Scripture? Aren't we supposed to just stick to exactly what the text says? I mean, this feels a little bit subjective. I don't trust my imagination. In fact, that's exactly what I said when I was exposed to this form of prayer about 12 years ago. Uh, I rejected it completely. You see, I was a Bible guy. been teaching the Bible day in and day out for years and decades, and, and I took it seriously. I didn't trust my imagination. I definitely didn't trust my emotions. Right? And I didn't involve either of those in any of my study of Scripture. It was too holy to let my broken emotions or my imagination be involved with. So I get any reservation anyone may have for this. And so first, I want to just say a couple things. One is that this is just another tool. You can toss it out if you don't like it, and that's fine. But before you do, if you're prone to, I ask you to hear me out for a second, because this has turned into one of my favorite forms of reading Scripture. And first, because of this, is, is this is not actually a foreign concept. This feels weird or strange. It's actually not a foreign concept for any of us who have followed Jesus. We've been doing what's called Ignatian styles of using our imagination and engaging with the Bible for years and years, our entire lives. We've been doing it for centuries. I mean, think of any nativity play that you've ever seen or been part of. 
People are imagining what that is to bring it to life. They're taking the scriptures, imagining it, and then demonstrating it, often in really heretical ways, right? Because <laughs> we don't really know what we're doing. But they're imagining what that is like, and they're adding all sorts of details and other things that weren't part of the original text with three wise men and cute little mangers and all these other things that weren't present and animals that had no right to be there at that time, right? Or think of any nativity scene you might put on your mantle for Christmas, And you think of the amazing subjective depictions we take in putting those things there. So much more so, some much more so than others. In fact, Sarah and I, we were in uh, Leavenworth recently at that Christmas shop uh, a few months ago. And we were in there walking around upstairs. I'm sure all of you guys have been up there, or many of you have. And there's a bunch of those old nativity sets, like 100 different nativity sets. And we're like, wow, this stuff's weird. This is weird. And whatever the one that's like $20,000 or something that's up there. And then anyways, I heard some lady saying to the shop worker, do you have that cat nativity set again this year? I'm like, cat nativity, right? Legit. She's like, do you have that cat nativity? And this, this, the worker goes and hands her a box that's like $300 of a cat nativity set. I'm just like, why does this thing exist, right? I do not know. That's not what I'm talking about. Imaginations. Don't imagine yourself as farm animals. Like, maybe there's some weird way you can make that work or that you're, you see the sheep observing what's going on. I don't know. But that's not what I'm talking about, all right? So it can get weird. But Think of any passion play you've ever seen. There used to be, I don't know if they still, there used to be an amazing one here growing up that we used to go to every year that was incredible. The huge amphitheater. I forget where that was. Where was that, Mom? You don't remember? Okay. We went every year. There was this amazing play that was done. But when you think of those, the amount of imagination that's used in that, and the amount of subjective decisions that are made in depicting that. Or think about one of the most top-rated TV shows out today by IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes, available on Netflix and so many other places, called The Chosen. Right? It's writers and producers are following in an Ignatian tradition of seeking to imagine what was happening, to portray it, to capture the sights, the sounds, the, the emotions of it. In fact, let's look at a one-minute clip of that. If you're online, I think the... incredible show just a tiny clip there if you've not seen it please go and watch it. it's amazing that's the most recently from the third season i think episode nine um the whole thing is free on angel studios app an incredible series on season three right now but this is an incredible show where they powerfully demonstrate the stories and bring them to life again the ignatian tradition of of kind of really imagining what that would have been like and taking the strip the scripture and, and, and really bringing it to life in so many beautiful ways to help us enter the text so we can experience it and not just read about it. 
But I also recognize there's some that actually don't like the chosen for that very reason. And so, but before the chosen, we had the passion of the Christ, right? And literally millions of people gave their lives to Christ by watching this film. An incredible portrayal of the passion of Jesus on those final days as he's crucified and resurrected. And some people didn't like that. But before the passion, we have the Jesus film. Back in 1979, this thing was made. The Jesus film has now been translated into over 2,000 languages, more than any other film in history. It's been literally seen billions of times around the world. And they expect it to be seen 5 billion times by the year 2025. As of this year, more than 600 million people around the world have dedicated their lives to Christ as a result of this film. 600 million. It is the most effective outreach tool over the last 40 years. In fact, probably in all of history is this film depicting the life of Jesus as it brings the story of Jesus alive. No other method of outreach has come even close to the impact of what this film has had as it depicts the life of Jesus and, and brings the story of Jesus alive and helps people to enter into it. And it's now available in almost every language on earth. Or for those that grew up in the church, maybe you don't like those, but maybe you might remember this song. But this is all about recreating stories and re-dramatizing them. Why? So that our kids can enter into the text. So they can imagine what it would have been like to build, to be there, to, to sit in the tension of it, to recreate those stories. Or my kid's favorite Bible show, maybe some of you guys don't know this one, is Superbook. Uh, you can find it for free on Right Now Media, which is available for free on our website for anyone who wants a subscription to it. But it's a reboot of the cartoon from the 80s, and it's just like the Ignatian meditation format in that these kids go back in time and literally live along with the stories of the Bible and they experience everything that's going on, minus this weird robot guy that's always part of it for some reason, but um, <laughs> totally accurate. Uh, but they enter into the story. It's a beautiful, beautiful show helping the kids to understand Scripture and to feel what it would have been like at that time. Or, or one of the more famous ways from my own childhood would have been this one, right? Josh and the Big Wall. Truly accurate depictions of entering into the text, right? Uh, just the way it is in Scripture. So, all right. So this is something we already engage in in different ways. The thing is, we just trust the producers and the writers and the actors or the illustrators to do the imagining for us. But there is a massive biblical precedent for this as well. It's not just something we've done recently. First, at a foundational level, God created us for fellowship, right? We've been talking about this a lot. That in the beginning, God created us out of desire for fellowship and that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit love to be with us and to speak to us and to communicate to us. And then when God had the authors, the men, and people of the Bible write down his words, we call that the word of God, the Bible that we have today, the inspired word of God. And for thousands of years, followers of God read the Bible with the understanding that is filled with emotions and images and metaphors. And over the years, it's been visualized and reenacted and memorized by the people of God. As a nation, they would remember it by literally living it out, acting it out on a regular basis, remembering what was going. And not just that, they would celebrate things like the Feasts of Purim, the Feasts of Easter and Palm Sunday and other festivals and, 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 and celebrations. And for most of history, the Bible was not primarily a text to be studied with our minds, but one to be lived out and acted out and sung and experienced and memorized and imagined, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, ingested. Did you know that almost half of Scripture is written in the form of poetry? Two-thirds of the Old Testament is written in, poetic, in the form of poetry. 
Now, I used to really struggle with this when I was in Bible school because uh, before I went, finally went to therapy and understood that emotions can actually be a good thing, um, I used to hate all the prophetic books, including Psalms and anything with poetry. I just, I, I really hated it. I hated the language. It made no sense to me. I had no interest in my emotions being sparked in any way. It was just all too flowery. I remember in my Bible school, we were studying through the book of Isaiah, chronologically going through it. By the time we got to this Isaiah, I remember one time I just got angry at God. It had been hours and hours of metaphors about God being a good shepherd and a rock and a fortress and endless ridiculous metaphors about his enemies and all the wonderful ways he's going to wipe them out and destroy them. And then Israel being a garden, Israel being a whore and all this other stuff. I remember one night in frustration, it had been an all-nighter of study. It was the middle of the night and I just yelled out at God. I was so mad and I said, God, why can't you just say what you mean? Like, why can't you just say it? Why do you have to use such flowery and emotive language? Just say what you're trying to say. This is stupid. I'll never forget that. And then the Lord spoke so clearly to my heart that moment, I'll never forget it. And I heard God so clearly respond to me and saying, because I don't want you to just, just, I don't want you just to read it, but I want you to see it and feel it. I want you to experience it. And that just blew me away. I had never considered that before. And it changed the way I studied the Bible from that point forward. Even though it would be a few more years until finally I went to therapy and got my emotions figured out, but I realized that God wanted me to enter into the text, to imagine him as a shepherd, or a rock, or a fortress, or an eagle that's flying. He wanted me to picture Jesus turning over the tables. He wanted me to imagine him uh, touching a leper that had never seen human touch in decades of life. He wanted me to see the sweating blood coming off of his forehead as he sat there in the garden. He he wanted me to hear Jesus crying out at Lazarus' tomb. I was so convicted at that time because by that point, the only way I was willing to study was in ways that I could understand logically and rationally. That's how I approached Scripture. Yet God chose to write in poetry almost half the time. And so that meant I had to learn to love it too. You see, God loves poetry and imagery. How do I know that? Because it's all throughout Scripture. It's almost half of his writing style. God is a very emotional God. And if we want to know God, it means we need to learn to love that kind of language as well. If we don't, it's like a girlfriend whose boyfriend is like a professional baseball player, and she wants nothing to do with baseball. She hates it, won't let him talk about it, won't go to a game, never wants him to ever see it, doesn't want to see his uniform or anything about it because she just doesn't like it. She says, I love you, but I don't like anything about you. (laughs) Or be like marrying someone from a different culture and refusing to acknowledge any of their cultural values, refusing to accept their, their language or anything from their culture, any of their food. I love you, but I don't want any of that stuff that you love. If we don't learn to enjoy emotive language and visual language, we must ignore half of everything God wrote down. Almost half. That's a lot. And this hit me so hard about 11 years ago. I think I shared this story before, but when I started therapy, I, I hated emotions 11 years ago. I thought that emotions were weakness, right? I prided myself on my ability to not feel things right, from my brokenness, from my past and stuff. And, but it happened because I couldn't relate to my newborn son. JJ had just been born. And in my master's program, at the time, we were doing a, um, 
a semester on early childhood development. Nothing will mess you up as a new parent like studying early childhood development, right? It will, wow, there's nothing will scare you more than that subject, learning how much you can destroy your child by the age of three. And, and it scared the crap out of me. I was desperately scared because I realized I, JJ would just scream all night long and I wouldn't care because I was emotionally broken. And I was just like, this is a great, this is a superpower of mine. Sarah could sleep. I can sleep right next to the crying baby. Look how wonderful I am, right? I can just turn off my emotions. And anyways, I went to see a therapist. I realized I'm going to mess this kid up. And uh, I'll never forget the first, the first therapy appointment that this therapist asked, Christian therapist, wonderful man of God, asked me what I feel about emotions, and I say they're weakness, right? Unless it's positive and excitement, they're weakness. And I don't want to be controlled by them. I won't let them control me. And then he asked me, well, if they're weakness, would you consider God weak? Well, no. He said, well, then is God emotional God then? Not really. I mean, maybe every once in a while. He's like, really? You're, you consider yourself a Bible teacher, right? And he goes, right now, do a survey in your head of Scripture. Is God an emotional God or not? Remember my head, starting in Genesis, briefly went through that, went part of Exodus, and then I was kind of getting overwhelmed. I jumped to the Psalms, and oh, no, 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 no. I jumped to Jeremiah. I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Jumped to Isaiah, and I just, at that point, I dropped on the ground and just weeping. As I realized, oh, my goodness, every single thing, practically, where God engages He's leading almost with emotions of his heart and love and longings. I just broke down. I realized somehow two decades of teaching the Bible and being a leader of a missions organization, and I did not realize that God was an emotional God. I saw it as weakness. When the reality was it was I who was weak because I didn't know what to do with them. I learned that God loves descriptive and emotive language. He loves flowery language and run-on descriptions of things. He loves creating word pictures that go on and on. He loves his people imagining what he's talking about. To picture it, to feel it, to enter in. Because we're called to be in a relationship with him. An experience with him. Not just an exercise of the mind. Not just a mental assent to his statutes and his doctrines and his principles. But God wants us in an interactive relationship with him. Not just an analytically believing doctrine. Not just knowing about him, but to know him and be known by him. Amen? And for most of history, followers of God would enter into the story of God. They'd get caught up in the emotions of the text. Just read any of David's psalms, especially read David in Psalm 119, as he describes reading the words of God and the way that he engages in that story. They could experience his word as well as mentally process the truths. But then something happened a while ago that the Bible was taken away from the followers of Jesus by the Catholic Church, and later the Enlightenment came, the Age of Reason, which brought many wonderful things, but also some very horrific ones. With the Enlightenment, or the Age of Reason, we lost so much of the beauty of Scripture. It became only about what we could prove with our minds, and what we could prove with logic. Emotions and the imagination were tossed out in favor of what could be proven, and the Bible became primarily a text to study and from which to pull doctrines. For most of my life, that's how I approached Scripture. I loved learning doctrine, and I loved using reason. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're beautiful. But it's easy for us today to think that to visualize or to use our imaginations now is just making stuff up. Like Caleb, my six-year-old, and playing with those dino nuggets at the dinner table. Then we think it's making stuff up, that it's not real, that it's fantasy. I love the way the scholar Dr. Garrett Green put it in his book, Imagining God. He says, For modern people, the imagination is often equated with the imaginary. It is the stuff of which children's stories and dreamy wishes are made, nothing more. 
If God ever did try to communicate to us with an inner voice, an inner image, or an inner vision or dream, and he says, I for one believe he's always trying to do just this, our scientific worldview would incline us to immediately censor it from our consciousness or write it off as just imagination. I feel we must recreate, or not recreate, recapture the beauty of experiencing Scripture, of entering into the text, to take the beauty of the Enlightenment but not lose what came before it. There's a reason, the number one way that Muslims around the world come to Christ, you know what it is? Dreams and visions. Today, millions of Muslims give their lives to Christ because of dreams and visions that they experience from God speaking to them directly. It's so incredibly common today. Yet he has always spoken that today, that way. But in the West, so many of us, we've tuned out that way of God speaking because it doesn't fit within our rational and logical minds. And so we don't hear many stories of that here in the West because we've tuned it out. Yet countless times in Scripture, God gives people images to see, to experience, and what he was trying to communicate. One of the most obvious examples is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Sorry, verse 1, Daniel says, Daniel had a dream with, quote, visions in his mind, is what it says. As he was lying in bed, he wrote down the dream, and here's the summary of the accounts, and he goes on to talk about the four beasts of Daniel in chapter 7 that he sees again in his mind. And so I love to enter into the story with Jesus. I found it to be a powerful way to pray and meditate upon Scripture with Jesus. There's actually a book I've been enjoying that I found recently called by Adrian Smith. It's called Joining Jesus on His Journey. And the, the subtitle is Experiencing Truth Through Imaginative Prayer. It's a 10-week prayer model, but this idea of the Gospels being like joining Jesus on his journey and just entering in and, and joining in that with Jesus, experiencing it along with him and those who are with him. It's a, a beautiful way to read the text. So now I want us to do this together. We're going to take a passage and we're going to walk through these steps and try this together. For some, this will be really natural. For others, it's going to be really awkward and clunky. And so I'm going to kind of guide us through this one as we do it together. So on your chairs, I've actually printed out the entire text. It'll also be on the board. Um, but there's going to be four specific steps we're going to go through. One, we're going to remember that God is present with you. Two, we're going to read the gospel passage through a couple times. Three, we're going to imagine the scene and walk through it with our imagination. And then four, we're going to finish by taking a moment to speak with Jesus. So let's begin. So remember, the first part of this is to remember that God is present with you. So we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us as we pray. And so this is going to be, we're just going to start and just pray. So I'll just pray right now. You can just pray with me. We say, Father... May you lead us in this time. May you guide us into your truth and your word. We don't want this just to be our own thoughts, but we want it to be yours. And so, Holy Spirit, we lean into you and we say, lead us and guide us in this time, Lord Jesus. Amen. So number two, we're going to read through the passage a couple times. We're going to use Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. So I'm going to read this through twice. And as you do, just try to enter in, like what is, try to picture what's going on in this story. So it begins in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. 
That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table sat among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's read it one more time. Again, try to begin kind of entering into imagining what's going on. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from a city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping, and her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom the larger debt was canceled. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and to Simon. Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, so now we're going to imagine this scene. Put yourself in the scene. Pay attention to what we see, hear, and feel. Look at what Jesus is doing. And so as we begin this, I want to give guidance this first time. I'm just going to kind of walk through the story. For, I, I recognize there's some that really wrestle with this. I was terrible at this when I first started because I'm so black and white. Um, I know there'll be some, I'm just going to walk through and kind of give us some guidance of just prompting of how we could potentially see it. And then I'm going to give us a few minutes to do it on our own. So as I would do this, as I take this, I would take a few minutes to just imagine the scene. I, so I'd picture Simon's home a respected Pharisee. He's clean and proper. And I'd picture the other people who are present. And then maybe I'd imagine myself as one of the people sitting at the table with Jesus. Maybe I'd imagine myself as the woman coming in, if I identify with that. And then I'd be aghast. And then I'd be aghast at what I see looking around me. And and as you do this, don't be impartial, but you want to enter in. You want to try and feel what's going on. And so I'd picture Jesus with his dirty feet, covered in dust, sitting there and Culturally, the host should have cleaned his feet, right? The host's feet sure would have been cleaned, but he, for some reason, ignored Jesus in that place. And then I would imagine the rejected prostitute as she comes in. The shame and scorn of everyone in the room looking down upon her of why is she here? And and then I'd see her come to Jesus, ignoring all the judging eyes, and she begins to clean his feet. 
Then I'd picture her with tears falling from her face, and I'd ask, why is she crying? And I'd watch her tears flowing, and I'd see her use her hair to begin to wipe Jesus' feet. I'd imagine her opening this expensive bottle of perfume and begin rubbing it into Jesus' tear-stained feet, while others just sat horrified. And then I'd be able to smell the perfume as it just fills the air of the whole room. I'd imagine her shame, this power dynamic at play of this broken woman in the midst of all these people of power. And then I would imagine Jesus standing up for her, vindicating her, seeing her as a human being, and then forgiving her for many sins. And then I'd see the judgment of all the people and the scorn as they didn't understand. So now let's just take a couple minutes. The passage is there before you, but you can't just close your eyes. Just walk through it and imagine what's going on in the story and put yourself there. All right, we're going to take two minutes. Amen. And now we'll do the last step, which is just finish by taking a moment to speak with Jesus. Reflect on what you saw in the story. Process how this passage applies to you. And and listen to what he might speak back to you. So take another minute now. Whoever you were, just imagine approaching Jesus and reflect with him on, on what you just saw in awe and curiosity of an onlooker and overwhelming joy if you picked the woman. And then just ask, what does this mean for me today? There's two more minutes.
Amen. Now, if you're comfortable, you don't want to, don't, you don't have to, but now if you're comfortable, turn to a neighbor, someone around you, and just talk, what if anything from that process just resonated with you? Just share with the person sitting next to you, or find someone. What if anything from that resonated with you? I'm frequently brought to tears in this style of prayer as I engage further with Jesus' heart and I see the way he cares and loves for the people around him. Now, I hope you enjoyed that. If you didn't, I get it. I hated it the first few times I did it. Um, For some, I'm sure it came natural. For others, that was just a painful experience. For some, maybe you're angry right now. How dare we engage in in a practice that's so um, subjective? And I I get it. and some of you maybe just refuse to try it, and, and that's okay, too. I, I, we're trying to, we're putting different tools, and some people won't like certain tools, and I get that, and that's okay. You don't have to do it. But if it was a strange experience, even if it was good, there's no problem. You, you can try it again. Um, that's why we put it on the prayer practice for this week. There's a sheet on your, on your, your, all of your seats of the prayer practice this week, in which case I put a bunch of different examples on that you can do, do and I kind of put the steps on. But I've also done one more where I kind of walked through one of the passages, kind of like I did today with a bunch of prompts, if you want the guide on there for that passage. And then I picked a bunch of passages, and I threw them on there of ones that I just think are really conducive for this style of prayer. Really, any gospel narrative will work, any gospel story, and really any narrative anywhere in Scripture will work for it. But I primarily use it for seeing Jesus engaging with people. You could pick any passage you want for it, really. But if you struggle to use your imagination, I know I used to be really black and white. It's okay. You can just verbally process through it. And that works just fine for me for the first few times until I was able to start seeing it more visually. And now it's an easy thing for me to do. But there's also this really helpful book. I actually found this past week and bought a copy because I bought the Kindle version. But it's uh, called Guided Ignatian Contemplation, Meditation on the Gospels to Come Closer to the Heart of Jesus. And it's not Catholic. It's a, it's a Christian dude that wrote it. Um, or uh, evangelical dude that wrote it, and it's just 14 different gospel stories where he just walks through and kind of helps set the scene, imagining what's going on, kind of doing, and just, you kind of read, and just does all the imagining for you, if you kind of wrestle with that. Really beautiful, lots of scripture, and he just kind of asks a lot of questions as he goes through. I think it's just a really helpful kind of way, as I, I enjoyed going through it, of seeing different things. I think I bought it for like five bucks on Amazon. All right. So as we finish this morning, we're going to invite the worship team back up now. But the heart of this style of prayer is that we want to know Jesus, right? If we want to live in love more like, we want to grow in intimacy, that means we need to know him, not just know about him. We want to enter into his heart that he has for us and for the lost and the hurting. 
We want for Jesus to not just be an invisible God that we believe in that's out there, but a friend, a father, and a savior that we know and we relate to, to have an actual interactive experience relationship with him. And therefore, that's why I want us to enter into the text, to get to know him more. Amen? Let's pray. Wow, lots of fun stuff. All right. Jesus, we come to you right now. We just say thank you for your word. Thank you that thousands of years ago, you had people begin to write these things down so that we could know you. Because you want to be known. You don't want us just to know about you, but you want us to know you to relate to you, to communicate with you, to commune with you, Jesus. So that's why we're just doing these different prayer practices. We want to know you more. So may you continue to place within our hearts a longing for you to dive deeper in, Lord. To not get stuck in ruts, not get stuck in places of self-hatred or even just stuck in places of our mind, of just seeing it purely as intellectual exercise, Lord. But you want to be known of Jesus. So help us to know you. Help us to enter in. Help us to explore your beauty, and your wonder, and your glory with our minds and our hearts and our will and our emotions, Lord Jesus. Open our hearts to you today. Thank you, Lord.